Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Women Invest in Real Estate podcast. I'm Grace. And I'm Amelia. We're your hosts, both full-time real estate investors on a mission to empower women through real estate investing so they can live out their wildest dreams. Whether you're just dipping your toes into the real estate waters or you're a seasoned pro looking to scale, you're in the right place. We'll be your real estate besties as we talk about our experiences, insights, the nitty-gritty details of our day-to-day lives, and of course, have some belly laughs. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Let's get started. Welcome back to The Wire Podcast. Today, we have Rachel Borkhart. We know and love Rachel from our very first ever Wire Retreat. She's an investor from Wisconsin who does a little bit of everything, single family, long-term rental, mid-term rental, and small multifamily. We talked about the difference between shiny object syndrome and just being scrappy when you first start out, which is right up our alley. We also dove into her 16-unit deal and partnerships, which she has made in many different ways. She loves networking and finding new partners. And so we're super excited for you to listen to this episode because it's very inspiring that she went from 10 units total to literally doubling her portfolio with a 16-unit deal purchase. Let's dive right in. You know we're all about women supporting women over here at WIRE, which is why we're so excited to showcase the Level Up Your Listing Summit happening March 11th through 13th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Join hundreds of other badass ladies for the most anticipated women's short-term rental summit of the year. This summit is a transformative three-day experience designed to equip you with the latest insights, strategies, and tools to revolutionize your STR listing game. Learn from industry experts and top hospitality brands, connect with over 300 STR hosts and real estate investors, and have a blast while becoming a super host. And if you can't make it in person, there's even options to join virtually from the comfort of your home. Head over to womeninvestinrealestate.com slash level up or click the link in the show notes to secure your spot. Use the code WIRE for 10% off your ticket today. All right, everybody, welcome back to the WIRE podcast. Today we have our friend Rachel. We haven't seen her since our first WIRE retreat, so we're excited to talk to her. And we're going to talk about the difference between being scrappy and shiny object syndrome. And Rachel's going to talk all about her investing journey. So why don't you kick us off, say hello, and give us a little bit about yourself. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. My name is Rachel. I live in Wisconsin. I have been investing since August of 2020, so about three and a half years. Um, My husband and I own 26 doors together, some on our own and some with partners. And he is also a carpenter, which is really handy and has come in handy quite a few times. (laughs) Score! That's like the perfect (laughs) profession to be an investor. Until you get tired of doing all the work and then you just want to outsource everything. Yeah, but it's good to have that knowledge too and to be able to just like pop on over whenever something goes wrong. I like this episode theme. And if you're confused, like, okay, shiny object syndrome versus just being scrappy, there is such a fine line. And I totally agree with it because I even think all three of us have done. I was just so, going to say all three of us. So many different things. We've all done, you know, we've done the burr, we've done midterm rentals, long-term, short-term, blah, blah, blah. But we're also super, I feel like we're scrappy and strategic about it versus shiny object syndrome. So is that what you think too, Rachel? Definitely. I think sometimes where kind of like the bad rap with shiny object syndrome comes in is that 
it's just, oh, here's something fun. Let's research this and then not do anything versus like being scrappy and savvy is like, here's an opportunity that's fallen into my lap. Let me take it and make something work with it. Instead of being so like focused, like I'm only going to buy single family rentals within this like super specific price range, three bed, two bath. Like you would miss out on so many opportunities if you're able to like kind of like tweak things and look at like multiple exit strategies and just being able to get creative with different things and making it work where others can't or others won't. I 100% agree. And honestly, I talk about, I think about this a lot, like, am I scrappy or do I have shiny object syndrome? Because same as you, the first couple of years in real estate, I was super scrappy and would take any opportunity I could to leverage it into trying to become a full-time investor. But now that I'm starting to build a team, I am laser fo- more laser focused on what I do want to do and what I won't do. So I think that there's a room for scrappiness and you eventually can build off of it. So why don't you take us back? Because we're talking about this. Like, what do you even do? Tell us about how you even got inspired to start in real estate investing. Definitely. So when I was growing up, I did have some family members that owned businesses or real estate. So like I was, I kind of grew up with it, but because it was what my family did, it wasn't like cool. Like I was just like, okay, whatever. (laughs) And then in college, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and then just like became obsessed. And I like listened to every podcast. I read a bunch of books. And one thing that I thought was super important that Ashley Care from the Real Estate Rookie podcast mentioned was to like get paid to learn. So I worked for a couple different property management companies. And I worked for a bank, like just to learn all the lingo and meet people because for like years, I didn't know what equity was. So like being able to just immerse yourself and learn everything possible, like, because at some point you don't know what you don't know. So I just tried to learn as much as possible. And then after college, you know, it was August of 2020. So COVID was going on, like we, there wasn't much to do. And I was like, I would really like, I just want a house to work on like a cute little cosmetic fixer upper. So we ended up finding a, a condo and then we flipped that. And then after that, we got another flip and then we started adding some, long-term rentals. We did a wholesale. We are house hacking a duplex. And then the other half is like short-term rental, midterm rental. So kind of like taking in a lot of different opportunities, but then being able to make them work. Earlier when we were talking about shiny object syndrome, I think we have to be really careful on the podcast about who we tell to be looking at all these different options because some people can never settle on anything. And that's where having like a very specific buy box and only Mm. looking at two bedroom single families that works really well for them because otherwise they get stuck in that analysis paralysis and then just never buy anything. So Mm -hmm. if you're one of those people, don't feel bad. You can definitely have one buy box and just be looking for that. But if you're scrappy and you feel like you can do all the things and you're just waiting for good deals to pop up, this is what we're talking about. I feel like you have to know yourself. Are you a doer or are you somebody who's going to think and think and think? And if you're a thinker, you need that airtight buy box. If you're a doer, like the three of us are, I would say another word to describe, instead of saying shiny objects, like what was coming to my mind is like maximizing. Like we maximized every opportunity and leveraged every opportunity we could, but because we were doers at the end of the day. And it's okay if you're not like, Some people just aren't, are a little more cautious, are a little more slower to take steps. And that's great in some areas of life. And so you just need to know yourself. 
And I love that you are sharing your story about all the things that you did to get the ball rolling and get the momentum because Amelia and I 100% relate. And I'm sure a lot of people listening do as well. So now that, you know, you've done a lot of different strategies moving into like the future and I, we're, we're going to backtrack a little bit, but is there certain strategies that you really like that you're like, okay, that's now kind of what I'm going to be focusing on? Or are you still in the mindset of if a good deal comes along, I'm going to snatch it up no matter what the strategy is? Definitely always snatch something good up. My husband is always looking for stuff to do on the side. But for the most part, we have found one thing that really works well for us is to bring in partners and then buy more turnkey properties. So partners that have some extra money that either they are investors and they are just are constantly looking to grow or someone that we know that just like wants to start investing but doesn't know where to start. So we partner with them. We, we find a deal, but it's turnkey. So it doesn't require us to work because we were good at that and we were enjoying it, but it's not the highest and best use of our time. So that's what we've been focusing on. And then buying like small multifamily and then primarily long-term rentals. How are you making the numbers work bringing in partners on your deals? Is the cash flow just really high or what do the payouts look like for those? Because I think newbies who've never partnered before aren't quite sure how that works. So how we've structured it with two of our partners is they bring the down payment and then we just split the cash flow equally. And then the other one was, that one was definitely a creative finance deal. And that was a larger portfolio. We had purchased 16 units last spring, my husband and I, and then a partner and and his wife. And so the bank financed 80%. The seller actually financed 15% of the down payment. So we each only had to bring two and a half percent. So we got 16 units for like $30,000, which is just, Awesome. The caveat is it won't cash flow right away because a lot of the units were under rented. So it's taking a little bit to get them up to rent, you know, like stuck in leases and stuff like that. But we just try to keep it equal because we find that everyone's just happiest when it's that way. You're not like, well, I provided more value here or, you know, I did this. So I think that's worth more. We're just like 50 50. That's it. Everybody's happy. I want to clarify on that first one you said where you split the cash flow, but they brought the down payment that your responsibility, I imagine, is managing and everything else. Yeah, everything. We find the lender, we find the property, we, you know, have the the whole network of vendors, we find the property manager, like we bring all of that to the table and they bring the down payment. And in our eyes, like they're all super important and we're not valuing one more than the other. So that's why we do the 50-50. And I wanted to bring that up because for those listening, if you find a deal, the money will come. So do not undervalue the value of being a good manager and finding a deal. Do not give up a huge part of the deal because somebody else has the money. You have a lot of experience to bring and there's a lot of work in being the manager and the acquisitionist and the one who is doing all the lending and the financing. So make sure you value yourself. Yeah, definitely. I want to dig into the 16 unit deal a little bit because before you bought that, if I'm doing my math correctly, you have 26 units right now. So you went from 10 units, which were a smorgasbord of different, you know, small multifamily to 16 units. So how did you have the confidence to make that leap? Because I think once a lot of investors reach that 10 door threshold, they're like, okay, now what? Do I keep buying small, buying duplexes, or do I take it to the next level? So how did you have that confidence? How did you find it? Like, I just want to know all the details. So let's just start with like, how did you decide, okay, we're going to go big? 
Well, so the partner that we have on that deal is a friend of ours. Him and his wife are both really good friends of ours. And he was my mentor for like two months until we found the deal. But we were, and I know him, like they just buy and buy and buy and they have a lot of units and they do it really well. And we really trust them. And he had mentioned he has another mentor client and he was like, oh yeah, him and I are partnering on something. And so that kind of got the gears turning because at that point, the largest thing we had bought was a triplex. And we're like, okay, we'll just like pick up one of those every once in a while. And then I was touring a a property with our agent down here where we live and kind of told him about the partner and, you know, kind of what he could bring to the table. And he's like, actually, I think I might know of something. And then we like kind of met up, toured the property. And my husband and I were just like, can we do this? Like, do we know anything like it total imposter syndrome? And we honestly just had to like talk about it a lot and be like, no, like we deserve a seat at this table. Like we have put in the time we have put in the education or we have educated ourselves like we deserve this we have worked really hard for this and nobody's giving it to us like we built the network we're still bringing the money like we can do this and then we kind of just like shook our way through it and and then we did it you are yeah is it a is it a 16 unit apartment building no it's five buildings so the largest is a sixplex and then two duplexes two triplexes are they on the same area all of them except for one duplexes on the other side of town. So, but in the same city. So what was the purchase price? 1.4. Wow. 1.4. And you only had to come with two and a half percent down. Yeah. How did you negotiate the seller to finance the down payment? So when, when our agent had told me about it initially, I was like, still sticker shock. Like I had never even dealt with anything that big. And so I just threw it out there. I was like, okay, well, I can't put that money down. And I know he won't, our partner won't want to. So like, will he fund any portion of that? Like seller finance that? And he's like, probably let me ask. And the seller is an agent and he owns like a couple hundred properties. So like he's, you know, he knows what he's doing and he knows all about that terminology. And so our agent just kind of went back and forth and was like, yep, he's willing to do it. And we kind of negotiated on several things and and there's definitely some nitty gritty stuff like within the actual structuring of it, but he was willing to trust us and he was comfortable taking that seller second loan. So it just kind of worked out well. Did the bank, were they looped in on that? Yes, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, we called several banks down here and a lot of banks were comfortable with that. And then what have you learned now that you dub over double your portfolio with one, with one acquisition, which was also a different property type than you'd ever bought? What are some like property management or business management things you've learned? We've definitely learned the importance of like having systems and outsourcing, but also having a really good network because like property management, I wish it was my thing, but it's just not. And so being able to find like a really solid property manager, but also like not just saying, hey, manage the properties, like kind of figuring out, okay, how often do we have to keep in touch? Like, what does that look like? Just we've definitely learned how to run a business versus how to manage a rental property. I love ding, that. Ding, ding, ding. We're we big. Love. We're really big on that this year. And I mean, you worked for a property management company uh, many moons ago, probably seems like. And then you were self-managing, I would assume, for a while, your own portfolio. So what were what was the decision like to finally outsource to a property management company? Because you're giving up, a, I would say some control over your portfolio at that point. So like, how did you weigh the pros and cons of that? 
To me, I got so stressed out dealing with tenants and I am a little bit of a pushover. And so we had a few like bad encounters with tenants. I just couldn't let it go. And I would just get really stressed out. And I knew that like I could do better things if I wasn't focusing on that all the time. Two days after I had my son, one of my tenants called me and was just like screaming at me. And I was just like sobbing in the hospital. I was like, why am I doing this? Like I could make, you know, more money doing something else versus what it would cost to hire the property manager. And that was, those were like the two biggest factors. And just so what have, you do to- I was going to say, have so much peace of mind yes. because we forgot to mention this part, but Rachel's such a kind and caring person. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I feel like self-managing your rental properties, Grace and I are obviously proponents of that, but it's not for everyone. And you don't have to self-manage. Like you can still make money on your portfolio without managing your properties. If it's not for you, you shouldn't be miserable owning real estate. <laughs> Like if you are miserable, like don't hire it out. Well, and I kind of grew up like with some people in my life with kind of doomsday mentality. So like every morning I would wake up and be like, did a tree fall on my property? Did a house burn down? Like, like worst case scenario, things that have never happened and probably won't. But like, that was just like all consuming me. And I was like, I don't have any peace. I don't have any joy. I got to figure something out. So what'd you look for in a property management company? So first and foremost, I leaned on my network. I asked everyone I knew in my area who they used and why and who they didn't use and why. And honestly, all of them pointed to one specific person and I interviewed them and I really liked it. And it's been, it's worked out well so far. Okay. So now that you have this 16 unit, you're stabilizing it. It seems like there's still some leases that are in place. What's the plan moving forward with this 16 unit? Yeah, the plan moving forward is to get it stabilized and then we do have to refinance it in five years. So after it's all stabilized and then once we refi, that's part of the term like that we have to pay the seller off, I think in three or five years. So then yeah, just keep it. What does stabilizing look like? Honestly, the rents are the only thing like we had to do some renovations to several properties when we had first purchased it and there was some turnover right away at the beginning. But for the most part, it's pretty turnkey. Wow, that's nice. Yeah. So you're just waiting for basically it's a waiting game for the leases to come up. Yes. Although a tree did fall on one of those properties, but it wasn't a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. I'm curious about how you financed it. And did you purchase all of them as one or did you get separate loans for each? So that way, if you decide to sell one off, you don't have to re-amortize the whole portfolio. So we did four on one loan and then the fifth one, just with how the seller second worked, honestly, I don't even remember the specifics, but that one was purchased separately because there was some weird thing with like the seller's lender on this specific property. So we kind of all tied it up into that one, but no, long story short, it's all basically together. Like those four are together, but my partner buys and holds like probably 99% of his. So we didn't really plan on selling anytime soon. Gotcha. I want to talk through like the partnership aspect of it a little bit. Like, did you guys sit down and talk through because you're it's a 50-50 split. Does each partner have certain responsibilities that are written down that you like know or is it more of a casual partnership? What does that look like? 
It's definitely casual. So like I've said a couple times, my husband is a carpenter and then his wife is actually um, an accountant and a bookkeeper. So when they do work, we would pay them out of the business. But otherwise, you know, working with the lenders and managing the um, property manager, we both just kind of tackled together. And we both like we're always CC'd. We have group chats with everything. And so far, knock on wood, it hasn't taken like a lot of extra work. Like we definitely keep in touch with our, co- our property manager, like as trees fall on properties and stuff <laughs> like that. But yeah, it's pretty casual. And then for the other properties where we have partners that like just fund the down payment, they don't do anything other than deposit a check. They don't want to be involved at all. So we do everything for that. And then they just cash their check. For those looking for partners who are listening, what tips would you give to find a good real estate partner? First, I would start with family and friends that you know that maybe they have money or they're interested in real estate or even have some rentals of their own because hopefully you've known them for a long time and you can know if you trust them or not and would like to do something, like invest in something with them and just start small with like one property, wait a couple years and then see how that's going and and maybe go further or just stop with that one and then just build your network. So like go to networking events, go to RIAs, message people on Instagram that you know from your area. I've met two women now from Wire that you guys have connected me with. Wait, who? <laughs> Alex Shaforjan and Sam Fink. Oh, yeah. I've never actually met Sam, but we've messaged a couple times and I think we go to the same gym. So, <laughs> I but love like, that. get out of your comfort zone to just meet a bunch of people because, like, someone had to basically drag me to my first RIA, and so many amazing things have happened because of that. And just, yeah, meet as many people as you can, like, call people, text people, message on Facebook, even like add someone on Facebook and just start commenting on their things, like, great job or whatever to whatever they're doing. And then that slowly starts to build recognition. You'll meet them in person, you'll go to coffee, and it just snowballs from there. Let's move into like just investing overall, like just your whole portfolio. Correct me if I'm wrong, but do you source most of your deals off market? I would say it's about 50-50 actually, off market versus the MLS. So for a new newbie investor who's looking to source their first, second, or third deal, what tips would you give them for finding these deals if they are off market? <laughs> Definitely. We had some success with writing letters. So we went on PropStream, downloaded some very specific lists, and then wrote letters to people. We found one, we found the one that we wholesaled, again, shiny object syndrome, but it was just a deal that worked for that for us. We found that through a letter. And then I've had several, I've bought one from a wholesaler, which I met at a networking event. I've seen one on Facebook Marketplace. So I'm not sure if this is like the best because it's like a little bit of everything, but I also think that's okay so that you know like you don't have to do everything but you don't like if you know someone who's doing letters don't think that just because you're not doing letters you're not going to find something like deals can be found in so many different different ways and you just have to commit you just maybe just start with one or two and then start expanding from there so going off of that what's your current strategy for finding new deals in 2024 we're not trying to buy anything so or we're not actively pursuing anything. So our network, if they bring us something like an agent or a wholesaler or a property manager, if they bring us something, then we'll look into it. But we're not really like actively looking, which I kind of like because like I'm still getting good deals, but then I don't have to do a bunch of work to find it. And maybe like I have to pay a little bit more or something, but I'm still getting the property and still making money. 
I think it's so much easier to negotiate an incoming lead, obviously a warm lead when you don't really want to buy. Cause you can just kind of <laughs> like, there's like no strings attached. Like if you lowball, like whatever, it's fine. I didn't really want to buy it. Like I was on Facebook two days ago and found a assignment of contract on Facebook marketplace. And I was talking to this wholesaler. I could tell she's from out of town. She doesn't know what's going on. So I lowballed the crap out of her and she said, yes. And I was like, oh shit, do I have to buy this property now? <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Was that That's in Cedar awesome. Rapids? Yeah. What are you buying it for? She had it for 95 and I was like, I would do 70 max. And immediately she's like, we'll make the deal work. Jeez. So what was she trying to pad her assignment fee for? I don't know. I think she has no idea what's going on. So we're still working through that. And again, I don't really want to buy it. So I'm just kind of leaving it in her court. If she wants to make the deal happen, she'll make it happen. If she really wants to wholesale this, I'm not doing anything. I don't, I don't need the deal right now. Rachel, do you have any advice for someone who's just getting started in real estate investing? Yeah, I would definitely say get paid to learn. So in whatever avenue you can find that work for, you know, an agent, a lender, work for a property management company, a bank, like just learn as much as you can, but get paid work for like be a delivery driver for UPS and then have podcasting all day long, but like learn as much as you can, but also make some money while you can, while you do it, if you can. It's a good idea. Do you have any specific podcasts that you like that are real estate investing specific? Well, I definitely love the Wire podcast. <laughs> That's a shameless plug. Good answer. Good answer. No, I'm just kidding. And then definitely Bigger Pockets and then the Real Estate Rookie. That was, I definitely, I listened to a lot of those, probably hundreds of those when I was first getting started. Ditto. I've kind of fallen off the rookie, the real estate rookie train, yeah. but I mean, I just was absorbed into like with those when I first started, I learned so much from them. Same, mm-hmm. same. I honestly going into 24, like not trying to buy a bunch of things. Like I've been really into audiobooks and real books. So I listened to like, I think 25 audiobooks last year and I'm just loving it. So if you guys are looking for a new hobby, <laughs> I do love a good audiobook. So wrapping this up, you told us what your new lead gen is, which is basically thinking over some really high quality leads that maybe fall into your lap because you don't really want to buy in 2024. But what about after 2024? What do you want to do in the future with real estate? I think my goal with and my husband's goal as well is to be able to work completely for ourselves. And maybe him and his brother, his brother's also a carpenter, they work for the same company, like maybe they're casually flipping or burying a property on the side, but just like slowly growing our business, but not to create jobs for ourselves. But also like our goal is to have financial freedom. And like Amelia, when it was snowing the other day, you're like, I'm out of the office snowshoeing, like, that's what we want. So like, to be able to create a business that allows us to do that. So I think primarily we love long-term rentals. I I really enjoy short-term rentals. I wouldn't mind sprinkling a few of those in there, but long-term rentals are definitely what work well for us. And hold on on the short-term rental thing really quick. Before we wrap up, are you, did you hire out management for that or are you still self-managing your MTR, STR? I self-manage that because it's the upper half of the duplex we live in. Okay. Okay. Got it. But everything else you've hired out. Yes. Wow. You are living the dream, Rachel. (laughs) I love it. So if people want to get a hold of you or see what you're up to outside of this podcast, where is the best place they can find you? Instagram at Rachel's Rentals, R-A-C-H-E-L-S. Awesome. Anything else that you want to add for newer investors looking to get started? Any sage words of advice? 
just to remember that every guru, everyone who is further than you started where you are at. And everyone was scared. Everyone put in an offer that got rejected and they're successful because they kept going. I will add to the fact that you didn't know what equity was. Like two or three years ago, I emailed a realtor about an eight unit and said, who pays Who pays the broker fees? I didn't even know who paid it because I had bought all my properties off market. <laughs> And I ended up buying that deal, but he had to have been like, who is this idiot emailing me? (laughs) But who cares? Ask the questions, figure it out. Nobody's born knowing. And so I like what you said, Rachel, about you will figure it out. And everybody who has figured it out started where you were. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for being on. And we hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll catch you next time. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you loved today's episode, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to check us out and join our community at womeninvestinrealestate.com and follow us on Instagram at wirewithtwoeyes.community.